0: Hello and welcome back to episode 8 of Chats with Chuck. Today I have the unique opportunity to be seated across from Hartley's head of school, Mr. Larry Fry. Mr. Fry was the long time head of upper school before starting the head of school job my freshman year, now four years ago. Mr. Fry, welcome.
1: Chuck, thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. I am, what do they say in sports radio, a long time listener, first time, uh,
0: whatever. (laughs) First time contributor? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. let's get started yeah great so first why don't you tell us a bit about why you wanted to be head of school what you like most about the job and about any surprises that came with it
1: um i'm very tempted to take the last part first um the surprises part i i guess i will i was surprised i've been surprised each of my this is my fourth year and in the first year merger slash not merger um and in years two three and four covid so there hasn't been what you would think of as a normal year yet isn't that weird four years later you must feel that as a senior you've gone like your high school career has been marked by those things too right
0: well i would say that this year has felt remarkably normal and i was actually going to get to that later yeah about kind of how you've helped create that but
1: that's true that's true much better for sure so anyway, there's been all kinds of surprises of that sort, like stuff nobody could plan for, really. Um the other surprise part I would say is um I don't think I quite understood how much fun it was going to be to be around younger kids. I've always been I've always worked with high school students throughout my career. Except my very the very beginning of my career, I was in college admissions, which actually arguably was still high school students. And so, you know, working with much younger kids, working with those faculty, um, you know, trying to be a support to the staff like Vicki and Mike Buck and all the folks who, who do all that great work at the school. That's all been really fun for me. I kind of thought it would be, but um, I didn't know how much fun that would be. So that's all been, um, those have all been variations on surprises, I would say. In terms of wanting to do the job, what I have found over the course of my career is just that I ended up being sort of drawn to the questions that ended up having, you know, kind of tendrils in every element of school life, right, from an from, uh, educational program to student support, to like admissions, and even fundraising, um, to, um, you know, how we take care of the building, and um, all, all that sort of stuff. I've just found myself drawn to the questions that end up being, you know, some analogy to interdisciplinary, right? So that, that is why I think I ended up taking an interest in, in, in this work. It really was sort of the questions that led me to the job, not the job that led me to the questions.
0: So you felt that you've been able to touch the most aspects of Harley and of the Harley yeah. experience as head of school. Yeah, and was. I, I, I do feel that way.
1: Yeah, and and it also uh, it's been important to me to to hope to, to feel, you know, I hope that I'm being a support to and um, a support to all these different kind of elements of the community, um, but also to learn about them, you know, and to come to understand each each thing at the school from how we run the nurse's office which i just ran to to get a lozenge to um to maintenance to the english department they're all complex and interesting in their own ways they all have long stories with you know kind of intelligent and well-meaning people behind every one of them and that's been really interesting um and to try to help improve and reshape as we go forward while um understanding that backstory has been important and, and kind of
0: fun. So, building off this idea of improving and reshaping, can mm-hmm. you tell me a bit about your first long-term plan for Harley and how it's played out?
1: So, I inherited the first long-term plan, really, right? So, I came in um, in 2018 and Ward Gory had been the head of school and part of his charge in coming to Harley had been to work with the whole community Certainly, including and and maybe centrally the board of trustees on the articulation of a strategic plan for the school, and what that means is really just trying to understand what is the most important stuff that we need to be moving, working on, and moving toward if we're going to keep advancing kind of the interests of the school, but also the mission, you know, the core thing that we're trying to do, and um, <clears throat> some really important stuff came out of that. I would say maybe the most important was the um faculty endowment so we came to the came to the conclusion kind of something that we knew all along which was that we weren't paying people well enough um uh you know at the beginning of the last strategic planning process and and We were worried that we would start to compromise our ability to have great faculty and as you know as a student There is nothing as important as having great faculty right completely agree And so um, if that's true, and you and I both know it is then you got to be serious about that so the school has ended up raising $5.3 million in an endowment for the faculty um, to support them both in professional development and in straight-up compensation. And so I inherited that, and I've, that was a great thing to inherit because I was totally into it. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like I needed my own plan. Um, so I inherited that. I inherited sort of the projects that were underway with the Center for Creative Media, the Moore-Brown Center, the Peckham Wellness Center, and the Natural Playground, the Winslow National Playground, which, which was the one I had to learn about. I didn't know anything about that you know, early childhood ed. Um, so just a ton of learning and getting up to speed and seeing all of, seeing all those projects through. And for me, you know, the part that was new was fundraising. I'd never done that before. Um, but I found that, you know, if you believe in the thing you're working on, it is not at all uncomfortable to say, to chuck chuck here's this thing that i believe in that we're working on let me tell you about why i think it's important and if you think it's important i'd love for you to consider getting involved in it and supporting it it's there's nothing weird about it you know um so i found that uh to be a bit of a revelation like i didn't know it was going to be um feel as comfortable as it has um and um and i'm proud of the work that we've done there gotcha yeah
0: what what is your number one goal for Harley for the next 5 years or next 10 years?
1: I don't necessarily think in quite those terms. The way the way I think about the school is that I think it I think the work of the school comes down to individual kids and kind of tiny moments and epiphanies and breakthroughs. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. So you've had experiences in class where you've just come to understand something in that kind of aha moment or the dawning moment. And those are priceless moments. Like to lead a young person toward a meaningful insight that reshapes how they see the world and how they want to engage in it, that is worth a ton. So I think in terms of like what's the core mission of the school, are we doing what we say we will do? That's crucial to me. And it's not always easy to do, but we stick to that pretty well. Um, and so I, I tend to think of it in those terms. Now, to turn it upside down and to, and to answer the question in a more you know, kind of institutional health sort of way, right? I feel like we have um, made a lot of progress in the last 15 or 20 years in, at, at Harley. I think the school is... I'm knocking on wood as I say this, but, you know, pretty well regarded in the community. Um, it's not like everybody sends their kids here or wants to, but but people who know about it know that the school does good work. I'm proud of that. Um, and, um, you know, kind of positioning ourselves for, as it were, an entire second century, right? So when I started, it was right after the centennial, and the idea was like, okay, well, we... That century was pretty good. <laughs> you know? What's the next one going to look like? Can we last through another century? Oh, my God. Um, and anything that I could do to position us well so that we can keep doing this work, one kid at a time, one epiphany at a time, um, for another 100 years, like that would be a meaningful contribution. So maybe that's a little bit of a personal goal in a way but I also think it's where um, it's the thing that the institution needs to keep in mind. Like what is it that sets us up for being able to continue to do our work um, long into the future?
0: And not to speak for you, but I think what you're really getting at here is it's about continuing to put students first yeah, in the student experience first and making sure that students have the experience that, is, that they're designed to have. Is that right? Yes.
1: Yes. I agree with that. And, And, um, you know, that question of what are they designed to have? That's a super interesting question, right? So um, around 10 years ago, um, a a parent came to the then head of school, Tim Cottrell, and said, I'd like to help you build a green edition. That was the language at the time. And a couple of years later, that turned into the commons, And so the commons is like a physical manifestation of a commitment to education for a sustainable future, right? Um, And that has reshaped the question of, you know, what is a Harley education? Well, now it includes that. And that's a meaningful reshaping of it. And that is a really incredibly interesting piece of work. Like, how do you stay, how do you do... As I think you've articulated in one of your questions, how do you do the stuff that's sort of classic, foundational um, learning? Like every kid who graduates from Harley writes really well. Um, that's foundational to us. Every kid who graduates from Harley is mathematically solid and literate. That's foundational. But meanwhile, the world evolves, right? And the climate crisis is is the most is the easiest you know kind of example of like. Well, that's an existential crisis for the Chuck Rutbergs of the world. What do you do if your responsibility is to educate those people so that they can go out and, and do something good in that area? So those are the questions that we kind of wrestle with all the time, that each discipline, you know, an English department meets, they're wrestling with that. The administration wrestles with it. We all do. And that's fascinating work.
0: So... You'd say that there's definitely a a core set of values that's guiding how the Harley program is designed?
1: Oh, yeah. There's definitely a core set of values um, for us. And I think it it guides both the educational program and kind of the cultural work of the school, if you know what I mean.
0: Do you think you could state those values?
1: Yeah. Um, I would say... Kind of number one is joy in learning. I would say number two is academic excellence. Number three, um, the cultivation of a strong sense of community. Um, number four, um, uh, wellness in each person. That's inarticulate, but um, physical and mental wellness. And number five, sustainability. Let me dial, let me spin the tape back though for a second. I started with joy and learning. And <clears throat> I wonder sometimes if people mistake what we mean by that. So my sort of ele- educational philosophical orientation is what used to be called um, the progressive ed movement, which was started by John Dewey and in the United States and is a worldwide, you know, kind of um, educational philosophical movement in the early 20th century. Um, And there are a whole bunch of precepts that are involved in it. But for me, one of the most important ones is that um, interest is the best guarantee of kind of intellectual life, right? So if you go to a school where you have extrinsic rewards, an A, a gold star, uh, animal crackers, whatever it is, because you've done something well, that's nice. But are you cultivating an inner sense of like, I like this subject. This is interesting to me. I'd read this even if I weren't being told to. Right? Joy in learning is the cultivation of interest in the life of the mind, and in, um, and in the world of the arts and sustainability and all of that. The reason you want to do that is because that's the longest-lasting engine of learning. If you have an extrinsic orientation, you go to college, and all of a sudden you're not getting the same kind of rewards, it can deflate very fast. But if you go off and you kind of think like, well, I, I, this anthropology seems interesting to me. I'm going to take that. Um, or women's studies is interesting to me. I want to try that. Or microbiology you know if you're coming from a place of intrinsic interest that is something that carries you all the way through and and the life of the mind is is kind of a joyful way to go through life right so the people who work here they're kind of learning and thinking and and engaging with the arts all the time when i was upper school head one of the things we would do when we would get back together in the fall is we would share with each other like one thing one work of art that we had engaged with that summer whether it was like a you know it could be an avengers movie you know or it could be a book or it could be a piece of music or whatever it was a concert they had gone to and it was so interesting because everybody is living that way and it's something that we wish for for our kids so that's why joy in learning actually is number one as opposed to academic excellence being number one because the joy in learning is kind of the engine, really, of academic excellence and, and
0: some of the other qualities, too. And I, I think just as a, with the student perspective, I think that joy in learning is something that's been instilled on me and my peers. And yeah. it's, I guess, at least for me, it's something that is taught a lot at home, too. I, yeah. I can't tell you exactly where it comes from for me, but it's, it's a value that I feel my teachers do push and yeah. do make sure that we get here
1: that's a great point though to what extent is it school and what what extent is at home and are they aligned that's a that's a big question
0: it's important mm-hmm. so kind of shifting topics here mm-hmm. to something a little more specific but yeah. where, where do you see harley in the ongoing so-called culture wars around yeah. education at least as a student i don't tend to see parents in the community being vocal about not liking what their kid is learning right but how does harley deal with issues like that when they do arise
1: In a way, you're not shifting topics, (laughs) because the previous conversation about, um, I'm not sure how much of this is from my parents and how much of this is from my teachers, right? Um, uh, Because Harley is lucky in that it has a clear educational philosophy and a clear sense of what we're trying to do. That's actually not something that's true at every school um and it is an enormous strength for us so when people come to the harley school they see like the first line of the school's mission is we are a diverse inclusive school if you don't want that (laughs) don't don't carry on with the admissions process right um you take a walk around the school and you see it's kind of fun it's it's um it's a, a little uh probably more boisterous than some schools, right? If you don't want that, don't carry on with the admissions process. You keep walking around, you see that there's a a hospice program and the, the the upper school teaches world religions and stuff like that. So the fact that we are able to, that we're coming from a distinctive place in terms of what we're trying to do, and that our program is really distinctive, I think means that most parents are really well aligned. If... You know, it's like they don't—they know what they're getting into. We want to be clear with people, like this is who we are and where we're trying to go. Um, So there shouldn't be any big surprises or things like that as we go along. So that is why I think—that's my um, thesis—that we don't have as much of that kind of, um, you know, kind of roiling Mishigas that a lot of communities tend to have around whatever the culture war debate of the moment is, and one thing, it's one thing after another with the culture wars, right? So um, we have tended to have much more like-mindedness. But at the same time, there are people who test us, and they want to know, well, why why are you doing what you're doing? And that's a question that we, on the school side, should always be ready to answer. If we don't know the answer to that, we shouldn't be doing it. You know what I mean? yeah, if people are asking you, why are you why are you teaching what you're teaching and you don't have a good answer for it? You need to go back to square one. <laughs> you, you know you need to get it together on that front uh, because that is just a really important part of our being who we say we are and are fulfilling the mission of the school.
0: so it's about putting that purpose and mission first., yeah. and people have to buy into the purpose and mission. And if they do, they're going to be happy with what's being taught here.
1: I think that's exactly right and I think that's why why it works. You know, it works for a ton of people and they know what they're getting into um and they know where we're going. You know, one of the great gifts in that area is to have like uh, Kirsten Allen Reader who's an alumna and taught for, you know, 20 years in the middle school. She's deeply rooted in the program and the philosophy and culture of the school. Amanda Patterson her associate director of enrollment also. Her kids went through here. She knows it that way. Cheryl Skiba, who was here for 39 years and just retired. I mean, that kind of depth of understanding and deep rootedness in the life of the community is part of what makes it work. People who really know who we are and where we're trying to go are the first people that visitors get to know.
0: That makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. So another common issue in education is teaching classical Works or skills yeah. uh, and more traditional stuff versus teaching topical contemporary issues. As a student, I think that Harley's done a very good job to kind of do both of those things. Yeah. But a lot of schools don't. So, can you talk a bit about how you've been able or how Harley's been able to to do that?
1: Yeah, it's not me. It's the faculty, right? Um, and we That's do we do myself. we do work together. Um, but um. That's a great question, Chuck. I, you know, there are some things that are non-negotiable, right? If you don't know what seven times eight is, it's going to screw you up all the way through calculus. It's going to screw you up in AP stats. Um, <coughs> excuse me. There are certain things that you just want to get down. Otherwise, everything is a big pain the rest of your career in that discipline. Um, that's true in languages and mathematics. It's true in my discipline, which is English, it's kind of true everywhere. Um, so there are some things that just feel kind of non-negotiable. How you go about teaching the non-negotiables is still an interesting question. Is it just rote memorization, or is there something more fun? You know, that's still a meaningful question. But me, but what you're asking is like beyond those fundamentals. You know, given like I think you're pretty interested in history, right? Um, history is the great example because if If you're teaching, um, well, let me back up. Uh, So I'm going to back up to educational philosophy again. People are going to regret me coming to this. Um, (laughs) But but, uh, Plutarch, uh, you know, the philosopher wrote that the mind is not a vessel to be filled. It's a fire to be ignited. Okay? It's not that you unscrew the top of Chuck's head, jam a bunch of info nuggets in there, and then screw the top back on. That's a vessel to be filled. That's not really how learning works. The way good learning works is that it's a fire to be ignited. You're trying to be arsonists in the heads of the chakra bergs of the world. Um, and, because, and that kind of connects back to the joy in learning. Those are sustaining ways of learning. So, now back to the history question. If you're thinking about learning as filling a kid's head full of info nuggets and then screwing the top on and sending them out for a test, well with history it's like just in a massive avalanche of facts, dates, and names and and it becomes this kind of collection of um you know unrelated info nuggets that is can be an incredibly boring way to engage with what should be an incredibly interesting discipline um so one end of the spectrum is is that kind of vessel filling orientation at the other end of the spectrum is we're just not going to do that <laughs> we're going to pick out topics that we think are deeply interesting to kids, that are relevant to them, that will, as it were, light the fires of desiring to keep learning or joy in learning. Um, and we trust that when they run into material that we haven't, quote, covered with them, unquote, that they will know how to go and get it. So at the Harley School, you know, you spend an entire trimester on dissent in American history, and it's a thematic organization, as opposed to you know, kind of running through, well, now it's 1858, what happened that year? Well, now it's 1859, what happened that year? Um, so our orientation is pretty different in in that regard. And so that is that leads us to being able to make choices like, well, we should be doing a lot of, what are we doing in modern global right now? What's the discussion um, about uh, Ukraine and, and Russia and Poland and whatever else? So um, it allows us to pivot. Um, in a way that, that I think keeps things relevant. When COVID first started, you may remember, I don't, were you in 10th grade? 10th grade, yeah, yes. That was so all of a sudden people are pulling apart the question in chemistry class of what's the chemical composition of hydroxychloroquine, right? Uh, we were able to pivot that way because that's more of our orientation.
0: I have to say that history question was a very I guess personal one for me, history's yeah. been my favorite subject. I've yeah. taken a lot of extra history classes, but I've always kind of wondered why yeah. in the required history classes yeah. they we weren't learning what someone might call like fundamental pieces of history, yeah. you right. know? It, they were always interesting. I always right. loved them. And I this I guess this makes a lot of sense to me that it's about getting people to love and enjoy history. Yeah. And that's when they go on to college and take history classes, or even better, just read history books as right. an adult and as a person, right? So in your
1: case, you've filled the gaps because you're interested enough to want to think like, well, wait, what is the what is what is uh, Kansas burning, right? <laughs> what is that? Um, or um, is it Kansas burning? Yeah.
0: Bleeding Kansas.
1: Bleeding Kansas. Thank you. Gosh. Um, you know, you'll go and dig it up um because it's lit that kind of fire in you
0: I think but- we actually spent a lot of time on bleeding cameras. oh did you really in yeah. class okay so there oh <laughs> well, that might have been a push though which yeah. was a uh, elective
1: yeah um but you can see though chuck nonetheless that there are these are trade-offs that you make there's n- if you're trying to do depth and coverage then you would just do history all day every day and then you'd have to do math all day every day and then right. you it's just you have to make choices um and, and so what are the choices that you think stand the kids in the best position when they go off and face new challenging material, very challenging material, when you get off to um, Washington and Lee or wherever you might be going? And, um, and we think the choices that we're making are, are better
0: in that regard. So
1: always choices. Huh.
0: Yeah. And there are also always options like like right. i said i've had the option to take a lot of ap history right. there are people that you know don't you know really love science and there are like four or five ap science classes yeah. that they can take right. yeah and so those are really wonderful things that Hartley offers and i have always appreciated that it's such a small school we yeah. somehow managed to have all these options for courses
1: it's a trick <laughs> you know i mean to offer whatever it is 18 ap classes and stuff like hospice and capstone in such a frankly tiny school is very unusual, um, and it's it's a credit to the to the faculty and and uh, folks like uh, Ms. O and Ms. McDowell for pulling that off.
0: What would you say are the biggest advantages and drawbacks of being such a small school?
1: I think it's overwhelmingly. It, I think it overwhelmingly confers advantages. I agree. In the, in the, in certainly in the intellectual realm and in the academic realm, it confers a ton of advantages. Getting to know Sheridan as well as you do, um, getting to know Foster as well as you do, getting to know all of your teachers as well as you have is just very powerful. And that's true um, both on a kind of classic academic achievement level, but also kind of on a personal growth level, right? Because we see you. As much as we do every day, um, the little changes in body language jump out at you. Believe it or not, I see it. I, I greet the middle school kids out front for the bus. I see it in them. You know, sometimes I'll see a kid come off the bus and their shoulders are slumping, and they usually bound off the bus. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking to myself, "Hey, I wonder what's going on with that kid." And it's that kind of close attention to detail that the that the scale makes possible. Because it's as small as it is, so I think overwhelmingly it confers, you know, mostly benefits. There are a few drawbacks because we're as small as we are. Even though a minute ago we were just talking about how we're nonetheless able to offer so much, there are some things we can't offer, like that, a football team that we wish we could. <laughs> exactly, <Yeah. laughs> exactly, um, and uh, and and that's that's too bad, you know. I mean, there's some things that you know there have been kids who've who've left the school who would have loved it. But, you know, let's say lacrosse was so important to them, they decided to go somewhere where they could play it or um, whatever it might be, right? I do think there's one other thing, and that is in the social realm, it can be, for some kids, hit or miss. You know what I mean? So I had three kids who went through here. And for one of them, um, my daughter Liz, she came in and... Um, a lot of the kids had already kind of sorted each, sorted out in terms of their social connectedness, and she came in in middle school, and so it took quite a while for her to make the connections. Um, as small as we are, that just limits the numbers. You know what I mean? So, um, and particularly, it's it's until middle of high school that people basically are just associating with with one gender in most cases which is crazy, but it's true. Um, (laughs) and, uh, and so, you know, that, that number can be relatively small. So it, uh, that in my mind is, is, you know, is, is double edged on the one hand. I'm saying that's that there's a sense of which is a drawback. I also think on the other hand, it's like you graduate with 40 siblings and that is a wonderful benefit too. Um, You know, siblings are complicated, but um, but by and large, it's uh, to the benefit.
0: And I I think when you say the social thing is hit or miss, a lot of that is going to vary by class more more than by individual. That you have to get a group of kids who's committed to forming a good community and to doing things for each other and to caring about each other. Yeah. And. um, And
1: the chemistry and character of each class really vary, can vary quite a bit. Even though the school is very articulate about what our values are, and you've been learning about, um, you know, love is something, if you give it away, you end up getting more since you were a tiny kid. And um, nonetheless, the character and chemistry of a given class can be really different from one year to the next. And one or two kids makes a big difference this way or that, so...
0: All right. I guess I want to move towards some of my wrap-up questions yeah. here. Yeah. Great. Are there any ways in which Harley has failed to live up to its goals that that you see that you can try and fix and how can they be fixed?
1: Yeah. Um well, we're um try So in in my first year in this job, I came to understand something about how Harley administers financial aid. Um Ms. Reeder and I came to understand this together. Um that meant that we was she would,
0: also knew it, her job. Yeah the same, same time. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah. Um so um we came to understand that the way we were administering financial aid meant that while Harley was very socioeconomically diverse relative to other schools particularly independent schools, we were not serving um, the most impoverished end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And to me, and to Ms. Reeder, I think that was an intolerable realization, right? This is one of those moments like, are you doing what you say you do? No, (laughs) we're not in this one really important area. And so how do we fix that? So... I'm happy to say that we have come up with a project that we call the First Line Initiative. I don't even know if you've heard of it, but
0: I actually have heard yeah, of it.
1: It's a little behind the scenes at the school. It's both philanthropic, which is to say fundraising, and admissions, and it's meant to create a way that is financially sustainable for the school um to invite people who are at the more impoverished end of the socio-economic spectrum to join the school. And so far, you know, so good. So I feel like that is something. Do you happen
0: to know how many students have been brought in through that program?
1: This was really the second year. There are now eight students who have have come in.
0: Do they receive full tuition?
1: It depends on the student. You know, everybody has to contribute. That's that's important, Mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, It's you know, it's going to Harley is, um, it's a privilege at some level, right? Um, And so you need to stretch to make it work but for every family that means something different right like you if uh, just people have different means they just have different means so a stretch for one family is very different than a stretch for a number so so you're still asking families we're, we're always asking for people to contribute uh, as fully as they can
0: but now it's more commensurate with what they're able to yes
1: make. exactly we were painting some people out of the picture and now we're no longer doing that so I would like to see us, you know, continue to do that, so that anyone anywhere on the socioeconomic spectrum can think of Harley as a possibility for them, um, and that's that's an important thing to me. So I th- feel like that was something that we weren't doing, um, that I'm now happy to say that we're making progress on, but we have a lot more work to do on that. Um, and you know, I I generally think that we do what we say we're gonna do Um, and when we find something like that we name it we say it out loud here's the thing that we ought to be doing that we're not doing (laughs) right yeah and by saying it out loud it has its own power people are also interested like nobody liked that so once you start naming it like people are like okay well what can we do about that what sorts what's a strategy to address it and that tends to be how we how we do things we we don't have clear visions about every element of school life and, and there's pieces of it that need work. Like, we have a funky schedule at Harley. Lower school, middle school, and upper school all, all have radically different schedules. So if you wanted to teach in more than one division, it's very hard. Like, that's a thing we need to fix. It's, you know, it's not major, but but we have lots of work to do. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: All right, final question. Yeah. What are you most proud of in your work as head of school?
1: Um, so I'm going to come back to that framing of both, um, the, the micro and the macro, right? Um, what I'm most proud of is just when we do right by a kid, you know, when, um, when somebody is excited about having, you know, gotten to the college that means a lot to them, or when, um, a kid makes some kind of a, breakthrough in dan o'brien's math class and they've been banging their head against some element of elementary algebra and they and they break through you know um when you see a kid um a lovely place where you see it very visually is in like athletics and in the arts when a kid breaks through something just those tiny moments are um they're they're incredibly important and they're kind of the whole shebang. So, on the micro level, um, the thing I'm most proud of is is when when uh, kids, you know, arrive at those moments. Um, on the macro level, I'm I'm very proud of the first line initiative. I'm very proud that the school um, is writing what will be one of the very first um, curricula for the climate crisis. Very proud of that. Um, Dr. Vinton and Seth O'Brien are leading that charge. Um, I'm I'm proud of a lot of what we do here. I, I I still I'm I'm like choked with pride about hospice and when I go to conferences and tell people about it, they just are their mouths hang open in wonder that we're able to do it. And what I want to say is like, why isn't the world beating a path to our door? We're doing something that is unbelievably powerful learning. Why don't you all want to do it? (laughs) What is wrong with all of you? That's how I feel, you know? Um, We can show you how. We'll give it away. We'll tell you just how to do it. Um, We've tried to do that. Um, And um, so it's funny. Who knows? Um, It's an idiosyncratic world. But I'm proud of all of those things. I'm proud of the data. You know, when I think about... um, I'm out front in that parking lot, and when it's sleeting sideways, and it's mid-February, and you see people kind of get out of their cars and head in, um, just the kind of punch the clock commitment that people have to the school and to their students, I'm I'm very proud of that
0: too. Thank you. All right, that is an, a wrap on this episode of Chats with Chuck. Thank you again to Mr. Fry for joining the show. and Episode soon. Bye-bye.